Good morning, church. We'll be reading today from Revelation chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, if you could turn with me and we'll read together. So Revelation chapter 2, 1 to 11. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walk among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slanderer of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Dave Martinen, and I'm one of the elders of Church of the City, and it's my pleasure to be able to teach um, from the chapter that was, or the section that was just read from you, just the first seven verses, uh, not all of that 11. So if some of you are thinking I'm going to try and cram teaching of two churches into one section, I won't be doing that today. Our identity is different from what you might assume it to be if you're not familiar with the teaching of the scripture. One of the ways that the Christian views themselves is as a, a traveler, a sojourner, a stranger, a pilgrim, uh, even an exile, and what that means is we don't quite fit in any of the cultures at any point uh, on this planet. And that is because our identity, our value, our future is tied up in what God has done for us and not what we do for ourselves. Uh, actually, Peter writes that in chapter 1, verse 1, when he's speaking to the scattered church, writing a letter that is to be circulated through all of the provinces, one of which is called Asia, which really means uh, the, the western rim of uh, Turkey. Uh, and we're going to talk about this, one of the seven churches that uh, the book of Revelation is formally and specifically addressed to. So that's the first thing, is that we're travelers. And it started way back in the Old Testament. Abraham, who was a, uh, a pilgrim, as it was a journey fellow, who was looking, as it says in the book of Hebrews, for a city whose maker and builder was God. But the other side of the coin is that once we've come to know Jesus Christ personally, our identity changes again. Not only in terms of the biblical dynamics of lost and found and light and dark, but also in the sense that we are now representatives on this planet of another king. 
We're ambassadors, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I think we might have those two texts up on the screen. The first one was from 1 Peter 1 verse 1, but this one is 2 Corinthians 5, if we go back to that, which says that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, which means the Christian not only experiences it, but he shares it. We've been given this trust. And he goes on and he says, therefore we are what? Ambassadors, representatives of another government. Right away, when you start using that language as baldly as I just did, governments get nervous about Christians. They view them as insubordinate. They view them as... as uh, uh, seditious. They view them as people that are trying to overthrow the power and authority. And sometimes Christians, I have to admit in our culture, behave badly, citing what it is the scripture they believe gives them support, and they defy the government, whereas the scripture says, insofar as it's possible for you, I guess they're deciding it's not possible, we should live at peace with all men and we should obey the authority set over us. But we are exiles on a journey and we're ambassadors understand that that means we're going to have dissonance as we see the culture to any degree out of alignment with the king we represent. We will feel uh, the pressure. We'll have collision with that culture. And in that collision, we have a decision Pastor Matt told us. This is also by way of introduction to the chapter. We have two choices. Will we remain faithful to the God who's given us this message of reconciliation, calling any, all men and women to join us? Or will we compromise and find a way to get along so that our light isn't so bright and we actually become what we would call secret service Christians under the radar nobody knows? And God says, no, you can't be an ambassador and do that. Let your light shine as we've been singing and worshiping. So now we're ready to dig in, and I have four um, points that I want to make briefly as we march through this. Our Lord Jesus counsels the church that he loves. We're talking about Ephesus. He loves this church. He doesn't hate it. He has some strong things to say it, but I don't know about you, but as a parent, I've been corrected. Didn't appreciate it at the time, but looked back and grew to value it. The second point is that our Lord Jesus commends the church that he loves. He says, this is what you're doing really well. Everybody likes to hear a little bit of praise and a pat on the back. Thirdly, Jesus confronts the church with he loves. There's an issue as they're living under the, this, this tension, this clash of cultures, particularly as the persecution and suffering is ramping up. The fourth is that our Lord Jesus corrects the church. He says, this is what you need to do. He offers another pathway. The Lord Jesus counsels the church that he loves. Now, I don't know about you, but when I choose a counselor, and I, I have been seeing a therapist to deal with historic trauma, there are two things I want to know about a therapist. Number one, do they have any credentials? Like, should they, in theory, at least be good? And then the second thing I want to know is reputation. Have anybody else gone to you as a therapist and found that you're good? In other words, I don't want to go and unpack my heart unless there's someone who really knows me or really knows the stuff and can direct me how to get unstuck. So what are the credentials that Jesus Christ the Lord has? Now, we could just dip in and say, well, look, he's God in human form. Of course he has all the credentials. But in chapter 1, we're introduced to some remarkable credentials of Jesus as the counselor. Uh, in summary, if we go back to chapter 1, I just want to briefly touch on that. You have this vision of Jesus Christ, and he is awesome. 
awesome, glorious, grand, huge, powerful superpowers, eyes that flame, feet like burnished bronze, a voice like Niagara Falls. Powerful and terrifying. Because when you come into the presence of this God, Jesus Christ, glorified, risen from the dead, reigning in authority and power. All of it's been given to him through his accomplished work on the cross. The response when you see him is like John. What happened to John? Now, John, you need to remember, is somewhere between 83 and something 90. Now, I don't know about you. He's exiled in Patmos for his testimony of the Lord Jesus. He's been a teacher and a leader. He, he's written the Gospel of John, the books of John. He's, he, he's an apostle, a sent one. And the empire of his day is so terrified of him, so convinced of his bad behavior as a Christian, that they exile him. Now, I don't know about you, but should God give me length of time and commensurate strength, I hope I'm a threat to somebody at 90. Imagine 90, locked up. Why? Because of words. Because he has the power of sharing with people the truth of how to be reconciled to God, how to come into a relationship with God so that you're not searching, hoping after everything you've tried and done, that God will look at you, weigh you on a scale, and say, okay, I'll accept you. No, no, no. The gospel is that God so loved you that he gave his son. It's not what you do, it's what's done for you. That's the message of John. That's the gospel. And so here we find him, what does he do? Place, face plant, right stretched out as one who is dead in front of Jesus. Now here's the point I want to make. So often in the clash of cultures, we're guilty of reductionism that makes Jesus comfortable, close, friendly. Sort of someone you'd sit down and have coffee with and slap on the back as one of the buddies. But when you see Jesus, as he reveals himself, he's the one that's pulling back the veil of heaven and saying, this is who I am. You go, oh my goodness. Like Isaiah, I'm undone. John falls in front of Jesus. Terrifying and awesome. It's about a couple of months from now that probably somewhere within this area, Handel's Messiah will be performed. It's this famous oratorio, if you haven't heard it, and the repeating line throughout of it is, King of kings, Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the chorus of hallelujah, hallelujah, it's just thrilling. If you haven't heard it and you enjoy classical music, make sure you go. He gets it right. So what does this counselor say? Not only is he this qualified wonderful, majestic, powerful God that we see and know. But look in chapter 2, verse 2 of Revelation, and, and we will read the, these words that says, I know. Now, what does he know? Well, he says, uh, there's two things I know, and I, I know not from a distance or just because of my authority and power, but I know because I'm walking around. I've been watching you, observing you. Now, for people who aren't used to that concept, the idea that God sees and knows you before you even explain yourself or attempt to justify yourself can be terrifying again. Really, he, he knows that. He, he knows me and my 
private life in my thinking? Yeah, it says in the Psalms, before a word is even fully formed on your mouth, God knows what it is you're going to say. I mean, we're not dealing with a God we need to tell something to in prayer as if he's ignorant or is it, if he's disinterested, we need to persuade him. He knows. That's why we can unburden ourselves and cast all our care on him because, as Peter reminds us, he cares for us. So, so in this chapter, what, what we begin to, to, to recognize is that he is not distant. And sometimes we get this idea that when Jesus rose from the dead and the idea of the ascension in, in Acts chapter 1 is that, oh, he's gone. We settle for the Holy Spirit who lives within us, which isn't a bad deal. But we miss Jesus, right? No. Yes, the Spirit lives inside of you and he is the down payment of the future that is to come as the scripture teaches us. But Jesus is not ignorant of us, and he's not disinterested in us. He's walking around among us. And it says in this passage of Scripture, because of the presence of Jesus, he's the one who does two things. He holds the seven stars in his hand. Now, some would say, oh, that's the guardian angel of the church. That's the, that's the one that God sets over us to look after us, and he, he holds that. And I don't think that's true. I think really the better way of understanding it is that this is the esprit de corps. This is the spirit of the group. This is who we are in Christ and what we do together as a group that's on journey that we want Jesus to be known through us as a people wherever we live, learn, work, and play, as we like to say. We're disciples on mission. And that has a, something that emanates from us, a, a esprit de corps. And Jesus holds the life of the church, not just a singularly, but us collectively in his hand. He knows us that well. He knows how we're doing. The second is, it says, he's walking among the candlesticks, and the candlestick is the outward emanation, the light that we share as those who follow and receive Christ, and we show the truth of the gospel lived out in daily life. So people should say, oh, that's what it means to be a Christian when they see us. Oh, that's what it means to follow God. Oh, that's what it means to be worshiping him and, and, and living him in everyday life. That's what it means. He's among us, seeing our light, our witness, our, our life. And so what does Jesus the counselor say to us in this passage of scripture? Well, he, he commends us. And he commends us in a, a number of ways. First of all, he says, I, I know what you're doing. I, I know your good deeds. I, I know what it is that you send kids to camp, if he was talking to us. And I, I know that you do some things generously for those that are disadvantaged. I, I know how it is that you care for the poor. I, I know what it is that you're doing. I know how you've worked on the campus of the university. I know what it is that you are trying to provide. I, I understand all that. I see that. Good job. Now, that's important, isn't it? that we know the Lord is pleased with our efforts and our deeds, that he sees them. And he also says that I see them in the context uh, of the rigor, because I realize that the pressure is going, and one of the things that our pastor taught us last week was that this is probably the time in history, given that the book was probably written about 95, the last year of, of Domitian's reign as the Caesar in Rome, and things were pretty grim. Because as he set himself up as the emperor cult, and he wasn't the first way back in Julius Caesar's day, people were giving a pinch of incense or a votive to the god who was Domitian, the living god among them. And Christians, of course, refused to do it. 
And people are saying, well, come on, you know, it's just a pinch of incense, you know, just get it over with and done and then you can live free. Now, why this really mattered to Ephesus is that Ephesus was technically what's called a free city state, which means the emperor had said, I'm going to send a governor there and you're subject to Rome, but you can have your own magistrate, your own city council, make your own rules and laws, just make sure they conform with mine. And they went, done, such freedom. But there's a responsibility that we need to keep our citizens in check. So you begin to see that all these Christians who are living as pilgrims and offering reconciliation and refusing to honor Caesar, you can begin to see how the pressure is coming down. And under Domitian, as our pastor reminded us, he made it a criminal act not to worship him. Wow. Pressure's mounting. And what does he say? I've seen your good works good job. I've seen your good works under pressure, and you've been patient, as the text says. You've been enduring. You've been under a struggle, but you haven't quit. You're persevering. He commends them in verse 2 and verse 3. He sees us. He knows us. He understands our struggle. As the black Negro spiritual says, the black spiritual says, Jesus knows all about my troubles. He knows all about my struggles. He does. He sees, he knows, he walks amongst us. He also says, and I know that you are able because of your excellent doctrine to test every so-called apostle that comes among you. So what he would be saying to you is you're going to be listening to me and then looking at the scripture and saying, is Dave really sticking true to the text? Is he really in alignment with the doctrine? That's the job of the whole church, not just the leaders of the church. Now, the leaders of the church want to be sure that we're not giving opportunity to teachers who are false. They're in alignment and agreement, but all of you are charged by the Scripture and the Spirit to be checking to see if what we're saying is true. He says, I know, I know what you've done. You've tested them all, and you've proven those who are coming among you and saying, you know what? You would really be a better Christian if you obeyed the laws of the Old Testament, because God is going to give you more blessing if you do what he says. Sounds reasonable, right? Well, then they want you to get circumcised. You would go, what? And then he says, yeah, now keep all the festivals and all of the great things that Israel's supposed to do and keep all of the laws. And what are they doing? They're putting a burden on you with the idea that if you do what the law says, God is going to love you more. Now, here's the truth of the gospel. He cannot love you more, and he will not love you less than he has in Jesus. It's done. It's never what you do for him. It's what he's done for you. This church knew it, and they called all these false teachers out. And they also knew this group called the Nicolaitans, and not 100% sure what they are if you want to do more research on them, but our best guess out of scholarship is that this was a group that taught people that the body was going to perish and go into the ground. The spirit is what lived. So what you ever did with the body really didn't matter. Well, now, if you agree to that, what does it mean? Oh, sex of every kind and form is fine because it's just the body thing. It's just an appetite. It's all going to disappear. So you can play fast and loose with morality. And you can go ahead and worship because you only do it with the body, not with the spirit. If you just throw the incense on it and you don't mean anything by it, it doesn't really matter. You see, what they're saying is, here's a way to compromise. You can have it all. And the Ephesian church looked at them and said, you are false teachers and a false cult and will have nothing to do with you. Never come into this place again. They, they banished them. They, they wanted nothing to do with them. They wouldn't hear them. 
Now, they would share the gospel with them, but they wouldn't receive their teaching. So Jesus looks at them and says, well done. You've stuck. You know the doctrine. You've, you've understood the pressure that you're under. You haven't caved to that. You haven't compromised. You've been faithful to the truth that you've received. He's commending them. They've really done a good job. So our Lord Jesus commends them, but then what is the next thing? We're probably not ready for it. We're not anticipating that it's come, but Jesus confronts the church in Ephesus. And what does he say? It's a powerful word. Because he looks at them and says, you know what? You haven't compromised your outward testimony. But I have this against you in verse 4. What it really means is I've got it. I'm offended by you. This is how you have wounded our relationship. This is what you've done that isn't right. It's a very strong statement. I have this against you, and you haven't dealt with it with me. It's still an outstanding offense. And this is what he writes. You have abandoned, forsaken, cut loose, divorced from your first love. That's the language here. This, this, some of us have a weaker term, maybe left. Some of you might have that word drifted, but it's stronger. It means that it was a choice. It, it was, there was something intentional about this, this word abandoned, left, forsaken. Uh, it, it can mean in its root word that you cut, sever, release. That's why in context, this word was the one that was used in the New Testament for the word forgive. Because when you forgive someone, do you know what you're actually doing? You're cutting off the offense. You're letting it go. You're saying, you could never make this up to me. You can't cancel the debt by whatever you offer me. And so I'm just going to take it into myself and I'm going to let you go. That's what forgiveness means. You, you let them go. You release them. And Jesus is saying to the church he loves, you didn't just wander away, but you've abandoned me. Now, how is it possible that you can have great doctrine, you, you can understand what's false against it, and yet you can have an empty heart? How is it possible that our works could be so good and God could look at us and say, well done, you've persevered, you've done all of this, but we could be nursing a loveless relationship with Jesus? It's not just the issue of pressure and compromise. It's not just the issue of exhaustion and having to persevere. It is the issue that they haven't cultivated the inward life of relationship with Christ. Now, it, it can happen easily. It can be like a drift. But I want to use a more dramatic kind of picture. Er, early in my marriage, I, I would give gifts to Donna because I grew up in a gift-giving family. That was my family culture. And so I would bring Donna flowers and I really wouldn't get a strong endorsement from Donna. You know, she would go, oh, those are nice, and then put them wherever it is flowers go, on the table or coffee table or something. I went, huh. Or I would bring her a little gift because I was thinking of her, and oh, she said, that's nice, and she put it wherever we put little trinkets. I thought, now there's something not working here. And I said, Donna, actually I didn't. What she said to me is, Dave, you, you like to bring me things. You know, I, you've established that pattern. And I'm really grateful for my being on your mind and heart, but I really like chocolate. Ah, oh, it dawned on me. Donna doesn't care about flowers. They're fine. She doesn't care about trinkets. They're okay. She wants chocolate. And she said, look, it doesn't have to be a lot. It doesn't have to be expensive. Just 
bring me a, a chocolate that you know I like. Well, I want you to fast forward because we just celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary. Oh, well, thank you. Actually, you shouldn't applaud for me, you should applaud for Donna. <laughs> uh, she's the one that uh, has put up with me. In this whole process, though, at 45 years, I want you to see this scene. It didn't happen, but I'm going to paint it this way. On the day of the anniversary, I drive my car up to the house, and I get out of the car, and I go to the trunk, and I take a huge banner that says, Happy 45th, Donna, and I tacked it to the garage. And then I go back to the trunk, and I get out this huge box, I mean huge box that cost a lot of money, of her favorite chocolates, so she can savor these things for weeks to come. And I ring the doorbell, and there's a lovely bow, and there's a card tucked in that says, you are my one and only, and I'm so glad that we've been married, and all that kind of stuff. And I stand on the doorstep, and I ring the bell, and she comes, and she says, answers the doorbell, and is surprised to see me. And I give her the box of chocolates and say, happy 45th, I'm giving you what you want. And turn and walk away, get in my car and drive away. And the neighbors say, you stupid idiot. That's not a marriage and an anniversary. W what are you doing? The best part of marriage is in that house, it's Donna. What are you doing living where you're living and not living with her? Do you think just putting an outward statement that somehow that is what impresses God? Do, do you see the parallel? Here is a church that is doing everything on the outside, doctrinally, works, uh, understanding and seeing false teachers, being consistent, not compromising, on the surface, completely faithful, and at the heart, barren of the best part. The same John is the one who wrote and said, I'm the vine, this is Jesus speaking, you're the branches, abide in me. Is the church abiding? Categorically not. So you begin to see what it is he's saying to this church and what it is that he's saying to you and I. You can have all the outward appearance. You can have your friends, your family, your workers, others around you where you live, learn, work, and play, completely convinced that you are a God follower because you check off all the outward appearances. But something you know is going on in your heart. And you know Jesus hasn't moved. But you've moved from him. And those of you who are maybe checking us out and don't understand the gospel, or this is your first experience of church, begin to realize that we're talking about not a doctrinal statement that you sign at the bottom, but a life relationship with the God of heaven who loved you so much that he gave his own life for you to pay for the sin that you could never work off and give you acceptance and welcome into his forever family. And what he asks of you is that you would love me back as I love you. The scripture uses it dramatically. It says you were bought with a price. You were a slave. You were so done in your own self that if I hadn't rescued you, you would have had no help and no hope. And this is what I've done for you so that you might be my children. Do you remember a time in your life where perhaps you first received Jesus and 
how it changed your thinking and your living and your heart. And you probably said things, oh God, I am so grateful, I am so thankful, not only in this day of national thanksgiving, but I am grateful in a different way, not for what you've done, not, not for all the things that I've received, not for all those outward things that I'm thankful for, but I'm thankful for you and what you've done for me. And this is what Jesus says to the church. Here's his, not just his correction, but what at this point is he, he's actually giving us a pathway back. He's saying to us at this point, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to respond to me. This is the correction. And he says, I want you to go back and remember. And we're going to do that in a moment in communion. And if you haven't received your... Um, your little uh, package. There's some at the back, and I would encourage you to get one. Uh, it's got a little wafer and juice in the bottom, and you might want to go out and get one, or maybe there's someone at the back that will take, and just, if you raise your hand, they'll come and give you one. But we're going to celebrate communion as a closure of this message, and we're going to remember, and we're going to repent as a means of coming back into that heart-focused relationship with Jesus. And let me tell you why we can do this and should do this. Because it, it, in communion is this beautiful uh, picture of renewing the covenant relationship we have with Christ. And I think I left mine down here. So don't think that I'm chasing after you, but oh, you know what, I dropped it. Oh, no, there it is. Recovered it. There are two elements in communion. And the communion is, is not for someone who hopes to be better by taking it. In other words, it's not a ritual. It's ritualistic in that we do it the same way again and again, but it's not a ritual. There's no merit in doing this. But there is a means through this of renewing relationship, of being reminded of who Jesus is and what it is he's done for you, and you're remembering what you, in the pressure and clash of culture, might forget. And so I'm going to lead, it, lead you through it now. Could you actually do this as a way of saying, Jesus, I believe in you, who you are and what you've done, and this is going to be an act of my actually receiving and repenting and welcoming you into my heart? Of course you can. But it is given as a renewal meal, as a ritual, if we want to use that term. Some say sacrament. We would say, no, it's not a sacrament because there's no merit in it. Uh, but it is an ordinance, we would call it, something that you do to renew your covenant relationship with God. And there's just two simple elements. The first is this little wafer, it's bread. Or approximate, no, it's bread. I'm going to say approximates bread. You're going to put it in your mouth and go, oh, well, is that bread? It's bread. Um, and what does it represent? Well, the scripture says to it, it represents the body of Jesus given for you. Now, how does it work? You need a little bit of the understanding of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Because what would happen in the Old Testament is you would bring your perfect offering according to the law with a, a lamb or a, a, a small calf without blemish up to two years of age, and you would bring it into the temple precinct, and then the priest would come over and you would put your hands on that animal and you would say these kinds of words. I deserve to die. 
I have broken the law. I have not fulfilled everything that you've asked. And I'm offering you this sacrifice in my place. It's substituting my life. And this is what Jesus says. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life is what the law requires. And I will give my life for yours. Now, if he's just a man and all you think is Jesus is a great teacher, well, he can't be great because he was deluding himself and other people. But if that's your view, you understand he has such a limitation. Because if Jesus was just a man and he hung on the cross and he said, I'm willing to give up my life for others, how many would his life count for? One, eye for eye, life for life. But if he's God in human form, which the scripture teaches, you begin to realize he has ultimate life. And he's given his life for us all. As John wrote in his gospel, God so loved the world that he gave his only unique begotten son that whoever believes in him, in other words, receives him and agrees that he is who he claims to be, won't perish, but will have everlasting life. So when you hold this bread, and I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we'll eat this together as a sign that we are a church in agreement over our doctrine, we're actually saying, Jesus Christ, without your death, I would have no life. In your death, I received forgiveness. You were rich, and yet you became poor poured out your life so that I, through your poverty, Paul writes in Corinthians, might be made rich. And whenever you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you're saying, it took all of you, your death, to redeem me. I believe this and I receive this. And Lord Jesus, forgive me for ever forgetting that you need to be the, the focus of my heart's affections that you need to be the recipient of my gratitude, that you need to be the one whom I serve and follow and worship, that you are my God. And I'm coming back to you. Father, we thank you for a simple emblem like this. We thank you for what it means, what it symbolizes, what it represents, that it represents the body of Jesus that's given for us so that we would not be forgotten. We would not be on our own struggling to have you accept us. But Jesus' death atones for our sin, forgives us, gives us mercy, acceptance, adoption, value, identity. We are loved by you. So as we eat this bread, we remember you, Jesus. Now we have this little bit of juice that was a cup, represents the cup that was at uh, the Lord's Supper, the, the final meal that he had before he died on the cross with his disciples. And they ate the bread, the afikoman that was hidden, the flat bread without leavening at the table. And then at the end, Jesus took the cup, which was probably the cup of blessing, the last cup of the Passover festival, uh, so deeply recognizing that's how they came out of Egypt with a lamb that was slain. They ate about his mercy. The angel of death passed over. Just a great picture of salvation. And then Jesus took the cup and he said to his disciples, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. What does that mean? Well, you know, when you die, you have a will, don't you? Well, you should have a will. You might be young and think you're never going to die, but I advise you have a will. As a pastor of a lot of experience, young people die too. Sorry, you didn't eat all that heaviness. <laughs> but what I'm saying is when there is death, then the will is opened. And what you do is you give through your will things that belong to you that you want those whom you love and are leaving in your will, you want them to possess. So what the new covenant is, Jesus is saying, this covenant written in my blood in my death is bestowing on you every good thing I as God and Lord have to give you. New life, hope, a future, the promise that where I am you will be with me, that I will come back for you, that you have this identity that cannot be broken, this love that I will never abandon, this hope that is always secure, and it's always through me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us this second symbol, that we have this covenant relationship with you that you formed through your death, and you are giving us through that covenant everything we need for life and godliness here and a future that is unshakable will never corrode and never disappear in heaven. Thank you for a love that will not let us go. Thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth. Thank you for preparing for us all that you have. And we drink this cup in remembrance of you. Amen. And then Paul, as he's teaching the church at Corinth, says this. As often as you eat the bread, as often as you drink the cup, you are showing the Lord's death until he comes. And this is what Jesus says to us. If we are willing to repent and do as he said. He who has a hear, ear, uh, even half attentive, Pay attention to what the Spirit says. To him who overcomes, in other words, the one who comes back into alignment and lives with me in this heart relationship, what? I will grant him to eat of the tree of life and be in the paradise of God. What does it mean? Well, in the Old Testament in Genesis, there was a tree of life, and when Adam and Eve broke this relationship with God and ate from the fruit that he told them not to, they were banished, and there was a sword set, as it says, that would prevent them from coming back. Why? So that they couldn't eat that tree and stay forever in permanent isolation away from God. He stopped that. But he says, you know what? When you're going to be with me, eat as much as you want. This is going to be our forever life together. And you'll be with me where? In the paradise I'm making for you. What a hope. So friends, as we leave this place, and you have more business to do with God, do it. But remember that Jesus loves this church. And he loves you. And he will speak strong words to you, not because he wants to hurt you, that you might be all his as he is all yours. God bless you.